This takes me back. <laughs> the sound of Laurel and Hardy performing The Trail of the Lonesome Pine from their 1937 film Way Out West. Very soon she'll belong to me. For I know she's waiting there for me neath that long pine tree. Laurel and Hardy were a British American comedy duo during the early classical Hollywood era of American cinema, consisting of Englishman Stan Laurel and American Oliver Hardy. And for those of us of a certain age in the UK, they seem to be on TV all the time, especially on a Saturday morning. And it always seemed to be that particular song from that particular film. Like the pine, I am lonesome for you. Now, as you can hear, the song refers to the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And the Blue Ridge Mountains are located in the eastern United States, extending over 800 kilometers southwest from southern Pennsylvania through Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Georgia. And you're probably wondering, is there a connection between the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia and standards? Well, there is, kind of. At least there is for this episode of The Standard Show. BSI presents The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Today's episode is a letter from America. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs, and this is The Standard Show, the podcast that brings you the stories behind the standards. And in this episode, we're bringing you a slightly different slice of the standards world. Now, as well as Lauren Hardy singing about the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia in the United States, this episode has also been inspired by another bit of UK-US culture that, again, many of us of a certain age will be familiar with, and that is Alistair Cook's Letter from America. It may be, I say it may be, that the Carter administration is overreacting with a violent, dying kick when it warns Alistair Cook was a British journalist who spent most of his professional life in the United States telling stories about topical issues. For more than 40 years, they were broadcast on BBC Radio on Friday evenings and I used to be riveted to them. Now, much like Alistair Cook, my guest for this episode is from the UK but has spent much of his professional life in the United States and who currently lives near, well, I think you could probably guess where. But this episode doesn't just involve talk of mountains, blue or otherwise. It also covers the airline industry, airline data and the use of standards. And about an organisation called the SES, a not-for-profit professional membership society based in the United States, dedicated to furthering the knowledge and use of standards. But not only that, there's also talk of running in airports, music, 
Lucky Fish and an eight-year-old girl called Vanessa. And sandwiched in the middle of the two parts of my conversation with my guest, we'll also have a standards desk of news. But before we get to all of that, though this is a Matthew without Cindy episode, here is Cindy with a reminder. Actually, Cindy, where are you? Well, actually, Matthew, I'm nowhere near the Blue Ridge Mountains, or any mountains, in fact, nor am I anywhere near the United States. I'm actually in Jakarta, Indonesia, to deliver a policy workshop on the role of standards in digital transformation. But through the magic of IT and audio standards, I'm here with you right now to give you a quick reminder that here on The Standards Show, we really welcome your feedback. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Find and follow us on Twitter at Standard Show and on Instagram at The Standard Show. And check out the show notes for all of the ways to get in touch. My guest for this episode of The Standard Show is a 30-year veteran of airline pricing and revenue management. His first 10 years spent at British Airways. He is now Head of Standards and Governance for ATP Co., the airline-owned organisation that collects airline product data content from over 400 airlines. He also collaborates with airline industry bodies such as IATA, ARC and A4A, the meaning of which I'm sure we'll get to understand. He has a graduate degree in business economics and accounting, is a member of the Chartered Institute of Management and accounting and obtained his associate standards professional qualification with the Society for Standards Professionals or SES in 2019. He also serves as an executive board member and treasurer at the SES. But when he's not pouring over data or changing the airline sector through standards, you will probably find him deep into his music. He has been a musician for over 30 years and a songwriter for 15 with his band My Lucky Fish and has a pretty eclectic music taste, citing his love for pop, punk, classical and metal. Others might call that confused. And when he's not doing that, you'll find him donning his trainers and using every chance he has to discover new places or a better way to rediscover old ones through running. And as we both discovered recently, we have a mutual friend that we've each known for more than 20 years. Hello, Linus. And also for 20 years, he has lived and worked in the United States. He is our man in America, kind of. He is David Mark Smith. Hello, David. Welcome to The Standard Show. Hi, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. I, I will say you've already taken me back to uh, my days in the UK by saying donning my trainers. I haven't used that word. <laughs> donning, I know, donning. Where does, I know, it's a word I use a lot. I have no idea where that comes from. Now, David, you have lived and worked in the United States for the past 20 years. So I've, got to, I've got to ask you, is there anything you still miss about the old country? Um, I, I think... Practically, it's the, the really the history of it. So living living around London as I did, you know, I grew up in the, the suburbs of London, so I was on the the tube, as we love to call it, around that area. But um, yeah, I think you know, America is a much newer country, albeit a, a, a few hundred years now. Um, it's always nice to go back to the home country, see parents, see the greenery of it, the simplicity of it, and uh, and and take in that history. So certainly things I miss, but uh, certainly made a home here as well for myself. So people need to place you, Dave. Whereabouts in London? Where do you have to head back to? So uh, I, I was actually raised, uh, I was born in Reading, but um, went to school. As you said, we have a, a mutual friend I was at school with for, for six years, uh, Linus. That was in Northwood. 
um, which is in Hertfordshire. Actually, my parents now have retired down to to Dorset, so um, you could argue one of England's greenest and pleasantest uh, parts of, of the country now. Absolutely. Now, David, I also mentioned uh, My Lucky Fish and also Global Musicians Fish Pond. So come on, tell me. Tell me about the music. Yeah, I'd love to. So yeah, it's been a, been a lifelong passion of mine, and I'm a great believer in that uh, that balance as well, and uh, bringing that into everyday life. So, um, as as a musician, I I guess I had a, a lot of pent up uh, energy for songwriting, and I didn't really get to it until I was forty years old. And having been, I, I know we'll get into um, the, the sort of standards role with ATP Co and the like. Um, the, the short version is that I'd worked in the business of collecting data and distributing it in a standard format for my entire career. And I thought, you know, I could apply this to uh, the music industry for um, something for good, something very altruistic that would benefit people. And I, I found there were a lot of young people around that were producing music, weren't quite sure how to get it out there. So I just started conversing with um, a, a bunch of musicians, having written an album at that point, um, knowing what the process was. Um, and really gathering gathering musicians, uh, both where I lived in America, but also through travel with work in multiple countries, and then putting out their product in a in a standard format. I have to say, it was altruistic. It wasn't a revenue maker ever. Um, musicians are, are quite well known for moving on to the next thing um, rather than really focusing on the the business side of things. But it's it's turned into a really nice archive of um, of musicians, their content. And uh, just been very personally satisfying and made me a lot of new friends as well. That, I mean, I, I love band names, right? So My Lucky Fish. What, what's that? Where's that from? So, the, the, yeah, you know, I, I believe it's, uh, it's a, a common marketing, um, marketing truism that there needs to be heart in things for them to really work. And there really was heart in that name. Um, it was my first gig out here in the U.S., and um, we had one audience member. Uh, everyone else was milling around doing their own thing. And she was an eight-year-old girl called Vanessa. And uh, she came up to the two of us, Rachel and myself, at the end. Uh, we didn't have a band name. And she presented us each with a little plastic fish that you can find uh, being given out at fairgrounds here in the US and said, um, you've really made my day, uh, the two of you, love your music, and I'd like to give you my lucky fish. And there it was, the name, and it's lasted uh, for all that time. Vanessa is probably, well, she will be in her 20s at this point and probably has no idea of, um, of the impact. Well, hello to Vanessa out there. It'd be amazing if she was listening. That's fantastic. So you're on stage as TBC, and then you came off stage and you became my lucky fish. Exactly right. Exactly right. Very productive day. <laughs> now, David, I want to come to your work at AT, uh, APT Co. But first, I want to get to your standards journey. And you've hinted at some of it already. Now, on the podcast, we ask pretty much all of our guests, you know, how, how and when did it start for them? So I'll ask you, your standards journey, how and when did it start for you? And where are you now? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, joining the airline industry as I did, and it was it was an interesting entry into uh, into the airline world. My auntie Liz worked in the personnel department at British Airways Revenue Accounting, and I found myself doing a summer job there. So I, I kind of, I fell into the airline industry, fell in love with it. Um, and I, I would say I spent probably the first 20 years of my career dealing with data and very complex data for airlines, whether that was financial or revenue management, um, or uh, inventory availability, without really putting the term standards to it. And much, much later on in my career, sort of looking outside and seeing that there were 
so many people that shared the same business problems, the same um, kind of um, the same challenges, I guess. And really what I've been doing all of that time was uh, was dealing with standardized data. So I think I, I kind of came late to it from a formal perspective, but had always been um, dealing with interface standards and, and, and data and coming, you know, coming from an accounting and business economics background, it came kind of naturally as well that that was something I really enjoyed. So uh, yeah, eventually, eventually came to be formalized uh, through the work that I'm doing now at ATPCO as, as head of standards. Now, this might not be an organization that people may not be familiar with. And I'll, I'll, I want to ask you about the standards work that you do. But tell us about APTCO. What is it? What's the organization about? And what does it do? So yeah, sorry, and just to say, it's ATP Co. It's a, a, a um, it's a very common to change the P and the T around, but ATP Co. I've written. Um, you see, this, this is the thing. I've written it down the wrong way. So there you go. Entirely my fault. There. Why not? <laughs> <Exactly. laughs> you know, at, at least we've given the audience the. Well, we have this thing called clarifications corner in the podcast, and we've done a live clarifications corner there. So ATP Co. Tell me, David. Fantastic. So, yeah, it's an organization established in the in the nineteen sixties, and um, basically, it was the the idea was a network economics model. I know there are many many companies that kind of deal with that, but it's the idea that having an industry utility uh, that uh, does the kind of neutral, non competitive stuff uh, in the middle of an industry uh, is a is a massive cost saving uh, rather than every single entity conversing with every single other entity out there. And in our case, it's getting information from airlines on their products, uh, whether that's prices or whether it's services that they offer, the rules around the products that they're selling, and getting it out in a consistent format uh, to uh, to channels to sell. So if you think about, for example, an Expedia or a Priceline, um, any, any travel agency you might buy from on an airline's website, the airline intent of that offer has to be represented to the consumer in a consistent way. And that's really where we've come in. We're a big a big data company that is supported by uh, standards that uh, that tell all of those consumers of the data how to present the airline's intent in a consistent way. And, and we have a, have products around that to to support it. So that's in essence, that's that's the core of our business. and um, it it supports um, disciplines for the airline uh, across their business like you know we talked about revenue management revenue accounting those tend to be the back end sort of functions of of airlines kind of analyzing their products uh, working out what to get to market but also pricing and shopping and you know these very complex things now formulation of airline price and product and presenting it to the consumer um, in a way that they can understand and comparatively shop easily and your role then David, as head of standards and governance, what 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 are the standards here? Is, is this is this private sector standards here, or is this is this using public, you know, um, consensus based international standards? Tell us about the standards work that you do. Sure, yeah. So we we actually um, we we tend to call them uh, proprietary standards that support the data that we put out. In in fact, ACPCO has become a de facto standard over time because pretty much ev- every airline that's getting their uh, products and prices out to the marketplace uses ATPCO as an industry utility um, and um, and you know th- therefore um, the the standards that we have um, support across the industry but yeah they are not ISO standards they're not ANSI certified standards um, they are certainly our own our own proprietary set of documentation just supporting an entire industry 
for for pricing and shopping. So we maintain them ourselves. They are all under our own control. The governance piece is important to that. So you mentioned, you know, head of standards and governance, our councils and our design teams that we use to uh, to move those standards forward and evolve them. Um, which, of course, from the 1960s, you can imagine how much evolution has happened of airlines getting their products to market. That's a really important component to have an understandable, organized, transparent, especially as a neutral company for the industry, to have a transparent way of prioritizing and, and moving those forward. So in a, in a nutshell, that's our, that's our standards and governance program. Is a relationship, though, David, you, you talked about them being proprietary, but is a relationship with the international standards world, with the work that you do in, in your area of standards? Uh, we, we, don't, uh, we don't typically go to, again, to the ISO standards side, side of things, although, um, of course, there are standards we adhere to as a company. So as a corporate, we, you know, certainly as we've seen standards on personal data, credit card data, that type of thing, um, we adhere to that. Really where, um, and, and you mentioned at the start as well, working with companies like IATA, the International Airline Transport Association, Airlines for America, um, otherwise known as A4A, Airlines Reporting Corporation, those are the companies that represent bits of the airline supply, supply chain that make that whole distribution of the product to the market work. So those are the standards that we that we work with. Um, in, in essence, we, we characterize our technical standards in uh, into three pieces. One of them is the interface standards. That's the um, the data elements that we have and distribute and descriptions of them. We have processing standards, which say, you've got all this raw data. Here's how you put it all together. And then the piece that refers to this question that you asked is supporting services standards. How pricing and shopping works and interacts with the rest of the industry and you know how uh, a priced airline product gets onto a ticket and can be serviced for a change or a refund that a consumer might ask for, how it gets accounted for. All of those things need to work together. And um, I will say, I, I do find, in 30 years in the airline industry, I find it amazing that you have a global industry that just works. So you could buy, a, buy an airline ticket anywhere in the world and that ticket is going to look the same and it can take you all the way around the world and it just works. And and there's such a fundamental um, set of standards and data that and, and systems, of course, that makes that work. So it's interesting to say that uh, there, David, about the, you know, you can you can buy you can buy this ticket and it will be the, effectively the same experience around the world. Has that always been the case, though, with the, with the airline uh, with the airline industry? I think it's something that's evolved over time. It's a re- really good question because I think, you know, we've moved through the era of automation. So, of course, airline bookings and reservations and, and ticketing was a very, very manual process. When I joined the industry 30 years ago, we were in the world of paper tickets and uh, they were carbon copies as well. Um, and I think we've we've seen a couple of things happen uh, throughout the industry. We've seen widespread automation, electronic tickets, you know, and, and now we're kind of seeing seeing a retailing revolution as well. Um, uh, as as we get to sort of much more of an, an offer and order mentality, but also deregulation has happened in our industry as well. Now, it was before I joined it, so much of that was during the 1980s. But as deregulation came on and the market opened up to to competition and uh, less less regulated routes for flying, then then there was far more opportunity for it to work together. So I think really the summary of that is that. Each country tended to have their domestic way of doing things. And then over time, again, that network economics model worked really, really well for, for that business. So as it globalized, um, it, um, it it's just saved a lot of cost and just became a really natural thing to do for these kind of uh, utility areas 
uh, which which allowed for sort of a, a neutral company like ours. We you know we our mission uh, really talks about us as a as a neutral honest broker as well, and allowed that to exist. So it's it's an evolution, and it will continue to evolve over time. I mean, who who knows politically where the world's going? Globalization versus reverse of globalization, um, but. Uh, those standards and that those processes will always be there to support the consumer. Now, we'll pick up the second part of my conversation with David shortly. But first, let's have the Stanley's Desk of News. Standards for Artificial Intelligence. A new initiative to improve how AI is used across the economy, including in sectors such as healthcare, transport and finance, was launched earlier this month. The AI Standards Hub is led by the Alan Turing Institute in partnership with BSI and the National Physical Laboratory and is supported by the UK Government Department for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport and the Office for AI. It is all part of the government's National AI Strategy, a 10-year plan which aims to build on the UK's strengths in AI. The idea is that the AI Standards Hub will ensure that industry, regulators, civil society and academic researchers have the tools and knowledge they need to contribute to the development of standards and make informed use of published standards to advance trustworthy and responsible AI. Political Agreement on the European Standardisation System Earlier this month, negotiators from the European Parliament and the Council of the EU struck a political agreement on the amendment proposed to Regulation 1025, which regulates standardisation in Europe. Regulation 1025 governs how EU legislation is supported by the three European standards bodies, SEN, SENLEC and ETSI. The amendment to the regulation is part of the new European Standardisation Strategy, published by the European Commission in February, which aims to strengthen the role of European standards in the internal market and on the global stage. In particular, the amendment aims to enhance the role of national standards bodies in EU and EFTA member countries in the development of harmonised standards to support EU legislation. A harmonised standard is a European standard developed by SEN, SENLEC or ETSI following a request from the European Commission. And talking of SEN and SENLEC, they recently announced the winners of their Standards and Innovation Awards which celebrate the important contribution of research and innovation to standardisation. To find out who won and for more information on the other stories, check out the links in the show notes. And that's the Standards Desk of News. Now, let's return to my conversation with David. We ended part one discussing the role of standards for what David does working with airline data. In part two, I started by asking David that given his 30-year career in this field, where might standards be needed next? Yeah, that, that's a, that is a great question. Actually, it's one that we're, we're in the middle of at the moment. There's a lot going on in, in the airline industry, that, uh, which, which really is at a point where, you know, I'm, I mentioned this journey to automation. So if you kind of think about um, uh, you know, how visible this is to the consumer, I'm not, not so sure, but you kind of think about airlines have their prices, their inventory, their reservations, their ticketing, their servicing. And, and it's very much a an evolved kind of chain of automation. I think, you know, when we think about the modern world of retailing and certainly airline retailing, um, there's much more keenness for 
uh, it to be what what I called an offer and order mentality. So you think about um, how how we shop in a modern retailing environment is is really not um, a sort of we buy a ticket, you know, we have a coupon that represents what we're going to claim in the future. It's it's all it's all a bundle of services that we can easily change, and payments are becoming more complex. So there's a lot of effort being put into um, where it's appropriate to standardise for for those things for modern airline retailing versus where it's important to innovate. So you think about channel channels that are selling airline tickets need to be able to innovate, not in a standard way. They need to innovate in a competitive way um, on how they're displaying to their consumer base, for example. So it's, it's a really interesting journey to see where that line lands. Um, actually, one, one of my favorite challenges from a few years ago was um, doesn't, don't standards get in the way of innovation? I'd, I've always thought that you know, standards actually are the only way to innovate at scale. It's, it's the only way you can move forward. So um, in, interesting time, still still to be written. Maybe maybe a future episode if you ever haven't back. <laughs> well, it's a... It is an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because I think you're right. On the sort of on the surface, you might think, well, if you standardise something, you are stifling that creativity and innovation. But I'm interested in what you say there. You know, how maybe give, give us an example of how standards have allowed you to, as you said, to innovate at scale. How has that taken place? Yeah, so I think I think generally, you'll, so our business is is kind of notorious for it that you'll see innovation happen, and of course, everyone wants to innovate the business, but. Once you start getting into the complexity of airlines having to do business together or deal with multiple channels or selling offline points or allowing change and refund or complicated rules with their products that um, that allow them to revenue manage and sell them at the right price, um, then then you start to find that those innovators kind of come, come back for the bits that they, they really want to use as more of a utility and more of a kind of a, a neutral service. So we have a we have a history of that. An example, um, I, I guess it ties to my accounting background. I worked on a, a solution for tax calculation uh, for um, for consumer itineraries, and every every pricing system in the world had built their own version of calculation taxes. And then everyone realised that there was no point maintaining that code. That actually having a central point of distribution for everything tax related. So that there were standards around it, there was data, and it served every pricing system in the world was an important way to scale. So that's I, that is the best example I have really of the, the the whole world fragmented, and then came back to this industry solution, and it's a much cheaper way of moving forward. Um, and you know, it took from two thousand six design, two thousand ten implementation, um, twenty twenty one. Finally, the last big shot, big uh, pricing system in the world implemented ATP code tax. So we're there, and there's a big network economic benefit from that. It just takes time to do so. But a great, great example there of let the world innovate, but then when it doesn't make sense because it's more of a neutral uh, thing, then you bring it back in and, um, and have the cost savings, and then the world can concentrate on innovating on the things that are really important and competitive uh, out there. I think maybe maybe just from a personal perspective, it was actually a lovely move um, just personally for me to go from an airline, that, of course, an, an, an airline absolutely competitive list on the stock exchange. I was with British Airways for 10 years. Um, and it's, al- although we're obviously we're a business, as a neutral, honest broker for the industry, that was a lovely place to go professionally. Uh, for me, I've always 
as I said, you know, with the music side of things, believed in that there needs to be heart in what you do. And it's as near to altruistic as you get um, to kind of be at the center of the industry and only exist to provide value to that industry through fast, accurate and scaled industry solutions. So just been just been a lovely 20 year journey. It's why I'm still here 20 years on at, uh, at the same company. So, David, you're you also um, I mentioned in your uh, in your introduction, a rather floral introduction to this episode that um, you obtained your associate standards professional qualification with the Society for Standards Professionals or SES in 2019. I've just noticed Where's the E? What is it? What is it? What is it? Where's the E in SES? Tell me. Interesting, interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. So, so SES, so Society for Engineering Standards, was actually founded in 1947. So it's a very um, sort of very tenured uh, non-profit organisation for standards professionals, and the name was modernised. The acronym acronym was not just yet. So um, SES, yeah, has has the same uh, same principles it always had. Uh, basically, it's there for um, for standards professionals, for professional development, for networking. Uh, there's certification, as you mentioned. You know, it's, it's it was my place of choice when I was looking around for getting a certification as a, a standards professional. Um, we we have leadership opportunities. As I said, I'm on the on the board of the SES for the last couple of years as well as their treasurer, um, and just being able to engage in. Um, events uh, that allow for education, but also allow a lot of discussion on best practice and kind of thought leadership among fellow standards professionals. I certainly found that um, moving to that industry agnostic environment where lots of people had all the same challenges around uh, around standards was a really refreshing place to be, to step out of aviation where I, where I have been and I love being, have been for 30 years, and look at it from a completely industry neutral perspective. So that's uh, that's the lowdown on SES, and it's been uh, only a three year journey for me so far, but um, but a, a very valuable one for sure. And give us an insight of some of the other people that might be members of this organisation. Is it is it uh, people who are working in proprietary standards like yourself, or is it also uh, professionals who are involved in the um, sort of formal infrastructure of the standards world, working on ISO standards or ANSI and that sort of thing? So give us an insight to the sort of people that are that are members of, of SES. Sure thing. Yeah, we have we have all sorts. It's one of the things that makes it really attractive. That there's a lot of different. Um, sectors so we do have industry people such as myself um so you know of course there are standards that are proprietary within industry we have standard pure standards developing organizations um who are members we have people that are very involved in government um in the us and globally and academia as well academia is is very plugged in to um to the standards environment and um you know, it, it is an interesting thing as well that although a lot of our membership right now is US-based, there are notable uh, members globally as well. So we do get that um, that kind of global uh, input. And I will say, I was just in Geneva, and it was an aviation uh, meeting with IATA last week, uh, and I, I happened to meet um, a colleague from SES who is based in Geneva uh, with the IEC. So that, that, that was a really nice opportunity as well to... Again, network, share ideas, and um, and where we're at in our standards journey. So, as an organisation, uh, David, I just wonder how you know is it unique within the states, or rather other similar organisations that have coalesced around a, a particular type of standards makers, or you know, was it is, is it unique? 
Yeah, we certainly feel, and you know, again, full disclosure, I'm on the board of SES, but so I, I would. Um, you would say this anyway. <laughs> in, in a, yeah, in our, in our uniqueness and, and, and the value. But we, we certainly, we very genuinely as a nonprofit believe we are unique, that that ability to be able to network so broadly uh, across industries for any type of standards activities um, and actually get to meet service providers who, who serve that industry as well. Um, it is a unique thing. And actually, as I mentioned three years ago, becoming head of standards at ATPCO, I started taking the standards thing very seriously and was looking around. And an SES was the obvious choice for me. I mean, it was literally a um, a search for whoever might be able to afford me networking and certification and development opportunities. And, uh, and, and SES was it. And very long established. And by the way, just a, just an aside, really interesting one. My um, my stepmom, who's I mentioned, she's down in in Dorset now, and she was in academia in uh, business economics for a long time, teaching, and said, "Oh yeah, I remember the Society for Engineering Standards. I used to do business with them back in the nineteen fifties." So um, that was kind of an interesting tie as well. It, obviously, it's been around for a long time, and the name has been known for a long time. Oh my goodness, it's come it's come full circle for the family. Then is that family full connection? Full for the family. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, David, tell tell us about this qualification. You talked about, about certification, sort of get accredited for your for your for the work that you do. Tell us about the actual qualification that you took. Yeah, sure. So we we have two levels. Uh, we have an associate and a certified standards professional, and uh, obviously they're, they're two different levels. The associate uh, involves learning, taking an exam, taking a certain amount of courses, and attendance of webinars. So it's really that that basic commitment to growing as a professional. Um, certified kind of get gets you to that level beyond where you need to be writing a paper um, or speaking with authority on a, on a standard subject. Um, and it's certainly something, you know, again, I mentioned in, in my, other, my other life in the airline world, standards evolve. At SES, we're always looking at how to modernize, digitize, um, become more appealing. And we're certainly looking at our certification process as well um, for how that does serve the industry best. And um, certainly, I know we have a lot of attention uh, at the moment on um, diversity, equity, inclusion, and also our young and emerging professionals and and looking to engage that community in how we can better serve um, the, the globe, basically, with that uh, that standard certification. So, David, as, as, a, as a final thought then, we uh, I mentioned in the introduction there about you uh, donning your trainers, and we uh, donning is one of those terms we both... <laughs> We both, uh, we both, uh, we, we bonded over the word donning. Um, <laughs> have you donned your trainers today, or will you be donning your trainers to go out running again in, in that in that lovely Virginia countryside? I, I, I certainly will, and actually, I, w- I will say, um, you know, the aviation world certainly affords some opportunities. I ran around the airport at Geneva last week, and it's something I've done twice now. But going through two country borders, it's a it's a seven miler to go around so that was that was a good one last week i'm sort of sleeping off the jet lag a bit i'm actually running on the runway at dulles airport there's a 5k uh, not just um not an unofficial version there is an official race on the runway um on saturday this week so i'll be doing that with my wife and my little three-year-old boy ellis um on saturday so some good opportunities coming up do do you only ever run on airport runways or around airports it's starting to sound that way but no i do do, and i will say i do remember matthew the first question you asked me when when we met was what do you see out of your window right now um and i will say it's for, for everyone else listening it's not that different out of my window but 
I'm 20 minutes from the Blue Ridge Mountains, so there are some great running opportunities the there. The Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. That's taken me back to uh, <laughs> Laurel and Hardy, if anyone needs to have that reference. Exactly. <laughs> Rammed right. home for them. I suppose, given that you work in the airlines industry, I shouldn't be surprised, should I? Because you've probably, you're flying to do in and out of airports all the time, I should think. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So David, that's amazing what you just said there because I've got I've got two children, right? I've got a I've got a son called Reuben and a daughter called Senan. And if I'd ever had a third child, I would have called them Ellis. How about that? I I love it. And you know, um, you know, Ellis actually there's no family history to Ellis. It purely came from me being a first generation immigrant to the US. So perhaps that's a good tie to the the whole story from America thing that uh, Ellis Island of course was the way many people came into the US and uh, we just thought that was a very appropriate name for a a second generation uh, Brit now in the uh, in the US. So David uh, David Mark Smith, thank you so much for talking to the Standard Show. Thanks so much for having me, Matthew. Great talking to you today. In the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, on the trail of the lonesome So, my thanks to David Smith for chatting to me for this episode. For more information about the SES, the Society for Standards Professionals, check out the link in the show notes. You have been listening to an episode of The Standard Show with Matthew Childs and Cindy Paragill. Subscribe to us now wherever you get your podcasts. In the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia On the trail of the Lonesome Park You just heard a stripped media production.